All right, so I have three brief questions that I want to ask this morning. And if you're okay, I'd like to see a raise of hands in response to the question. All right, so raise your hand if you're okay with raising your hands. Just uh, looking to see, okay. All right, all right. So here's the first question. It's going to be up on the screen because it's not a trick question. How many of us do not like to be judged? All right, no, I'm checking to see whose hands aren't up. Keep them up. All right, just because, yeah, we're all going to be judging you if your hands are not up. Okay, no. Uh, listen, I don't know that I've ever met anybody who likes to be judged. Okay, so, fair. Okay, so, next question. How many of us have ever judged somebody? Just checking your hands for liars. Um, okay, no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I just want to say, listen, it seems inconsistent, doesn't it? Right? Uh, but I don't like to be judged. And if I were going to be very honest, and since we're in church and I'm a pastor, I guess I will be, uh, I know I do sometimes judge people. So don't raise your hand on this last question, but here's the last question. When is it ever, and don't answer out loud, when is it ever appropriate to judge another person? Is it ever appropriate to judge another person? And there's some in the room who would immediately say no. And then, and then they would very quickly, they would quote Jesus, right? Uh, because Jesus said, do not what? Do not judge or you too will be judged. And our culture is constantly reminding us that Jesus said that, do not judge. But Jesus who said, do not judge. By the way, there's more to that teaching. We'll see it here in just a little bit. But he left us this example that shows us that that's not really a blanket statement. So, for instance, Jesus said, be sure to do what the Pharisees teach, but don't follow their examples because they don't do what they teach, which sounds a little judgmental to me. And if you're thinking, well, was that really judgmental? Jesus also called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, and then he called them snakes and broods of vipers. So at times, I just want to point out, at times Jesus did judge people, but he had other golden opportunities when he could have, and he totally did not. He walked right up to the tree that Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector and thief, I would add, was up, had climbed up in, and he didn't judge him at all. He actually invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for lunch while he was teaching in the temple, right in front of a group of people, right? This woman is brought in who was caught in the very act of adultery. It's not a question of whether she did it or not. She did it. She was caught in the midst of it. And he had this opportunity to judge her very publicly. And he looked at her and said to her, neither do I condemn you, right? Could have judged her, but didn't. And there are more you can read through and you might even begin to wonder, Jesus, I don't know. It seems like you're being a little inconsistent. I mean, it looks like sometimes you judge and sometimes you don't. Is, I mean, is, that, is it totally subjective? Did you just not get enough sleep the night before? Did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Were you hungry? I know I get angry when I'm hungry. Uh, is that the determining factor? This is your first morning with us. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC, and really glad that you're here in the room, glad that you're with us online, and I'm going to give a special shout out to my friend Walt, who we got hooked up 
right before this morning started. So glad to have you here, Walt, and his daughter, Judy. So Walt's here in town. Judy is in Florida and joins us every week. So really appreciate you all being here, everyone who's with us online. We're in this series called The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same. We're walking through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth to learn how to be disciples of Jesus while looking at some of their struggles, which is why we're in this series, you know, looking at what we are, first century, 21st century, but what we know is, and as we're watching them, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So Paul was with them when he started this church about 18 months, got the church started and up and rolling a little bit, and then he moved on to start more churches. Three years later, he gets some disturbing reports about what's going on in the church. They write him a letter as well, asking him some questions about how they ought to to think and act on certain things that are going on. And this morning, he hits on this whole idea of judging people. So Paul's going to lay out this principle in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, 1 Corinthians 5 is where we will be. Uh, if you have the Version Bible app, I recommend you go to the notes there as well. But he's laying out the principles that Jesus demonstrated for us in his life. Even though judging is, is very difficult, but when it's done well, it is the most loving thing we can do for someone that we care a great deal about. So let's see what the situation uh, is in the church in Corinth that Paul is addressing. Paul writes, it's actually reported, and I want you to read some exasperation in his voice. He's kind of, I can't believe I'm hearing this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the word that he uses for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's kind of an umbrella word. We get our word pornography from this Greek word. And it's an umbrella term, a kind of a catch-all for any sexual activity outside of the marriage between a husband and a wife. So anything outside the marriage of a husband and wife is pornea, and that's what he's hearing about. It's actually reported that there's a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And just to be clear, any of you who just heard that sentence and thought to yourself, what? But wait, that, that can't be, right? What? You just judge this guy. Just want to be real clear, all right? But doesn't common sense tell you, man, this, this is wrong? And most likely, although we're not really told this, he's using the words his father's wife as opposed to his mother because most likely this is his stepmother, which doesn't make it okay. It just makes it a little less, you know, ick. Uh, and it shouldn't have to be spelled out. But it is. The Old Testament, Leviticus 18, uh, and and then a couple places in Deuteronomy in case you have to be told more than once, right? Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. And I wonder if anyone is sitting back going, you know, I guess I can kind of see what he's saying there. Uh, This is that section of the Old Testament law, right? When you read through it and there's these things that you're being told not to do and you get to the end of it and you think, who has to be told not to do these things? Read it for yourself. You walk out of this this thing. I just can't even believe that's in the Bible. And a warning for parents, by the way, this is not the part of the Bible you read to your kids right before bed, all right? This is not where you want to go with them. Paul says not even pagans tolerate this. The Roman orator Cicero said that incest was practically unheard of in Roman society. What this guy was doing was considered a capital crime under Roman law. So keep in mind, What's happening in the city of Corinth, right? The temple to the goddess Artemis, the goddess of love, I mentioned in week one. 
that there were a thousand priestesses, uh, sacred prostitutes who were attached to this, and they would come out night to offer acts of acts of worship. Uh, imagine the influence they had on the culture, and how the sense of what is right and wrong had eroded over years. Corinth could be compared to Las Vegas, the way we think of Las Vegas in our day. But when Las Vegas looks at your life and goes, ooh, then listen, something's wrong. And the question becomes, what should be the response of the church? And maybe not what you're expecting, but certainly not what they were doing in Corinth. Verse 2, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this? Again, under Roman law, to do this, to to date your stepmother was a capital crime punishable by death, banishment or death. That's how the pagan world saw it. And yet the church in Corinth was boasting of the fact that they had a member, that they were so open-minded that he could be a member in good standing in their congregation. And Paul says, you should be mourning. And the word that he uses is the word for mourning over the dead, perhaps the deepest and most painful kind of personal mourning that's even possible. You know, someone suggested that it's possible that one of the reasons they didn't want to actually sit down and call this guy out on his sin is because they had some unaddressed, you know, sin in, in their life. And I don't know if you've ever, you know, heard anyone say, or maybe you've said this, well, who am I to judge? And it sounds good and maybe even right, but how often is it, listen, I don't want to deal with my junk, and so I'm not going to call you out on, you know, your junk, because if I kind of ignore your junk, maybe you'll ignore my junk, and we'll just live and let live, all right? If I start painting moral and theological boundaries around you, I may just paint myself out of the picture. And I don't want to make you think that what's about what's wrong in your life, and maybe you won't make me think about what's wrong in my life. And I'm just kind of curious, even while saying this, how many of us struggle with what's wrong in our life? I mean, there's something there, and you know it doesn't belong in the life of a follower of Jesus, and yet there it is. So maybe you can understand how this would happen. I'm not saying that's what's happened here. I'm just saying it's possible that this is when I say that because I think sometimes it happens today. Paul says in verse 3, For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul says, If I were there with you right now, I would have already stood up and said something. And the words he uses are legal terms. It's like he's a, a lawyer in a court of law. Listen, maybe you've decided to neglect this because you're not sure if he's guilty or not. You don't want to call him out for something if he's innocent. But Paul says, that's, that's very noble of you, but let me help you out. He's guilty. And to uh, our questions, that begins to answer our very first question, who should be judged, right? This principle we find in Jesus' ministry and what Paul is doing here is this, the church. Who is to be judged? The church is to be judged. Other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and King of their life. So if that's you, we're talking about you and me, all right? Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Because God will judge those outside. And while we would never judge 
anyone else's ministry or motives, we certainly have to be honest with each other about our conduct. Proverbs 27 reminds us that wounds from a friend can be trusted. You've most likely heard us talk about discipleship here, one-on-one relationships where we do this faith journey together. It's where we develop these authentic friendships. That's what this verse is talking about. You should, you should love each other and care for others. So if you trust someone, someone whose friendship you value and they come to you, I hope you'll be humble enough to listen to them. That's what this is about. And I know that you may be squirming right now because this is a hard thing to do. Can I just say, I'm squirming a little bit too, because this is, this is difficult. It will test a friendship. By the way, the other part of the answer is not those outside the church. Verse 12, Paul said, what business is that of ours? Verse 13 says, it's above our pay grade. God will do that. We're not to do that. They will do that. Uh, or God will do that. We're not supposed to do that. We should not, listen, we should not expect those who do not follow Jesus to act like those of us who do. You got it? Do not expect those who do not follow Jesus to act like those of us who do. But neither should we expect those who do follow Jesus to act like those who don't. Is that clear enough? Have we got it? I wish I'd put that in the notes. I thought of that this morning. Man, that was really good stuff. Listen, verse 4. So when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So in these verses, Paul's going to answer the question, why? Why would we judge somebody else? What's the purpose? And I want to make sure you catch this. This is really important because the very first purpose to do this scripturally is for the restoration of the purpose. The end goal is always restoration. When we talk about wounds from a friend can be trusted, what's the point of that? Oscar Wilde says, true friends stab you in the front. It's not a sneak attack. They want you to see this coming because even if it's going to hurt a little bit, it's to help you. When Paul says, hand him over to Satan, you may be thinking, what? But look at what he says next, so that his spirit may be saved, right, on the day of the Lord. That's restoration talk. Paul is not saying hand him over for the damnation of his soul. Hand him over so that he can be restored. I need you to sit down and judge him because we love him. And he needs to understand that his actions are wrong. And if he's not willing to correct them, once you have pointed this out and he's not willing to correct them, I need, to you, I need you to actually suggest that he needs to go away for a while. Put him out of the fellowship, this man who has been doing this, because he is too important to our community. When Paul says, hand him over, Look, basically, he's already running with Satan anyway. Let's just call it what it is. And when it comes to sitting down and having these tough conversations, even if it means suggesting within a church context that a fellow believer needs to be removed for a while before they can come back, understand this. Please understand this. There's already a disconnect between behavior and what we say we believe. Removing him is simply to define the separation that was already there and to clarify Paul's not talking about making a mistake here. He's because we all make mistakes. And Paul is not asking anyone to be sinless. We all struggle with sin. Are we clear? All of us, everyone in the room, everyone I'm looking at, everyone you're looking at right now, we all struggle with sin. Paul is the one who would write to the church in Rome, all have sinned. 
all of us, we all fall short of the glory of God. He's speaking to those who deliberately sin, feel no remorse, and refuse to make a change. He's talking about a pattern of behavior that I either refuse to acknowledge or I'm just not going to take ownership of. It's this idea that whenever I cross the line and embrace my sin, I think to myself, listen, I know this is wrong, but I like it too much. Or I know, I know this is wrong, but it'd be really uncomfortable. It'd be awkward to stop doing this. Or I know it's wrong, but you know what? God's going to let this one go because he knows my heart. And Paul is saying he does know your heart. And that's a problem right now. And we need to talk about it. That's why James would write in chapter 5, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So it's always, the first reason is always for restoration of the person, right? As a matter of fact, if you read into the next letter, 2 Corinthians, the second letter that we have, we call it 2 Corinthians. Uh, in chapter 2, it indicates that this man did repent and he was restored back to the fellowship. So the first reason is always restoration of the person. The second is protection of the church. Paul talks about yeast over the next few verses, 7 to 11 that is, just a little yeast will work its way through a batch of dough and influence it. And he's saying that's what happens inside the church. If the church was saying, man, you should see what we have going on inside our congregation, what does that behavior do to the rest of the church? How does that Example affect your attitude about who God is. How does that impact the generations coming up behind us, our next generations coming behind us, or the people who have just given their lives to Christ and are trying to figure out how to follow Him? What's, how does that impact them if we have that sort of attitude? What does it do to the reputation of the church when the culture says no, but the church is saying sleeping with your dad's mom is not that big of a deal? What does that do to the reputation of God's name? And who's supposed to stand up for God's name if his own children won't? Let that hit for a minute. Third question. When should we judge? This is where people quote Jesus. It becomes real pivotal. By the way, it's Matthew 7. It's in the notes. I want to make sure you know where it is. Matthew chapter 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. I've asked a few people, so should we ever judge emphatically, instantly? No. And then they usually quote Jesus, right? Do not judge or you shall be judged. And so you know that is what Jesus said, to which I ask, do you know the context of this verse? So I'll ask you, do you know the context of that verse? Do you know what's around it, what's happening, who he's talking to? Jesus isn't saying don't ever judge. What he is saying is don't judge as a hypocrite, which is a different thing. In verse 3, right, just following, he tells a story about a guy who has a two-by-four sticking out of his eye, going to his friend and saying, hey, I noticed you've got a speck of sawdust in your eye, right? So that's the story. Jesus said before you go to him and talk about this speck of sawdust in his eye, you need to remove the two-by-four from your own head because we would all agree, I think, that's the bigger problem, right? The two-by-four is a bigger problem. And once you remove the two-by-four from your eye, you can effectively go to your buddy and say, you know what? I notice a speck of sawdust in your eye, and I just want to say I know what I'm talking about because up until recently, and maybe you noticed, I had a two-by-four sticking out of my own head. And it wasn't very fun, but I've removed it. And it was painful. It was a process. But it happened. I was able to get rid of it. And my life is so much better now 
And I just want to warn you, that speck of dust will grow. The answer is, after I have humbly examined my own life, don't say, hey, who am I to judge? Once you deal with your stuff that you've earned, you've earned this credibility then to talk to people who are struggling too. My friends in AA, they tell me that those who offer advice are not those who have never struggled with alcohol. What good would that be? It's those who have been sober for a long period of time. It's those who have admitted their struggle with alcohol and have done the hard work of recovery. And they want more than anything else for everyone else uh, to be helped so that they can know because they know what coming clean, what being sober can do for you. So how do we live our lives on mission in this part of our relationship with Jesus? For you this morning, maybe it's David's prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that wasn't a one-off prayer, by the way. David would also pray, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. We have been told to live a life worthy of our calling of following Jesus. Again, I just want to make sure everyone knows, no one's talking about being sinless. No one's talking about never making a bad decision, never making a mistake, never choosing the wrong thing. When you know what the right thing is, we're not talking about that. We all struggle with that. We all sometimes succeed, and we all sometimes fail. That's not what we're talking about. But if there is something that has lived in your life a long time now, and you hope no one finds out about it, Or at a minimum, you're not willing to compare it to what the Bible says. Or you just don't read that part of the Bible. Or you don't ever talk to Jesus about it because I'm not even sure I want him to take that out of my life. Even though I really don't, I want him kind of not to notice. And I'm really hoping no one at the church does. If you've got that going on in your life right now, and it's, It's grown some roots inside there. These are your prayers. And you're going to need help. And it's going to hurt as that is removed. And my hope, my prayer is that you have someone here who will walk with you and be honest with you and will be brave. Please understand, if someone talks to you about this, that's an act of bravery and courage. Because they know, they know It might cost them this friendship. Would you pray those prayers and ask God, there's something in there. Actually, when you're praying that, you already know. We are to live a life worthy of our calling. It's why James reminds us to confess your sin and pray for each other. Don't confess it to just anybody. Somebody you trust who loves you, who will be honest with you because they care more about you than even your friendship. They want what's best for you. So that's the first. Or maybe for you, your next step is to talk to someone about what's going on in their life. When the sin of a brother or sister in Christ, when the damage that it is doing to them and the people around them has broken my heart when I can in my mind envision their restoration and when I want 
when I want the grace of Jesus for them more than I want them to experience his wrath or my wrath, that's when I should go. And so the question becomes, do I love my friends and God and our church enough to not let sin destroy them? Will I love my friend enough to ask them the tough questions? That is an act of love. And that's not for sissies. It takes bravery. It takes boldness and courage to have that conversation. Are you willing to do it? For the sake of your friend, for the sake of God's name, for the sake of this church, will you have that conversation? So we come to a time of communion when all of this becomes very real and we are reminded that Jesus wasn't playing. He spent his life on our forgiveness. I want to say that one more time. I just want to make sure everyone's listening. He spent his life on our forgiveness. His life. And we submitted to him in our baptism. We gave our lives to him, claimed him not just as Savior, but as King of our lives. We bowed our knees before him and said, what you say goes in my life. And in our communion, we say, in what we've just looked at, in your word, we submit to you still even when following, is, following you is hard. And it is. Sometimes following Jesus is excruciating. And yet, when we do that, it's always better. Always better. So that's the call. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to remember together then I'm going to ask you to finish the prayer before we sing again. Okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for what Paul reminds us of that Jesus you also said. And so really Paul is reflecting your teaching, Jesus. And it is hard to hear. There's so many stories we love in your word. <laughs> Man, we love the story of David and Goliath, and we love the story of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of Ruth and how faithful she was to her mother-in-law, and we love the story of Esther and how she saved the whole nation of Israel, and we love the story of your son and, and how he walked on water and how he healed people and raised people back from the dead and rescued poor Zacchaeus out of that tree how he saved that woman who had been caught in adultery. We love that stuff because we, we know who we identify with in that story because we know you've rescued us. And that's what we come to remember. We come to remember that you've rescued us. But we also come to remember what it means to follow you. And so as we take this bread that reminds us, Jesus, of your body that you gave for us on the cross and this juice that reminds us of your blood, we are reminded 
is not a game we're playing. Not just something we do for a bit on Sunday morning. And one more time, we bend our knee to you and say, you are not just our Savior. You are our King. And we will follow you. So help us as we remember and recommit. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. And so we take the bread that reminds us of his body given for us on the cross so that our sins might be removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So we remember. juice that reminds us of his blood that calls to us calls to us to live a life worthy of the calling calls to us to follow him even when it's hard it calls to us to reflect the kingdom in our world so that others might be drawn to him and sometimes that means hard conversations sometimes it means hard prayers And so as we take the juice that reminds us of his blood, we remember. So God, we give you this moment. And as we continue to pray now, we just, may we be honest with you.